0: Welcome to Equal Time Soccer. We're here with Chris Henderson of the WOSO Independent Podcast. You may recognize him from his just posted projections for women's college soccer and his outstanding work bringing the world of stats to his WOSO analysis. Chris, thanks so much for being here talking to us about the Gophers.
1: Yeah, no problem. Always love to talk women's college soccer this time of year. Exciting for everybody.
0: Well, and yeah, this is the time of of hopes and dreams and wild expectations. And every, everyone can pretend their teams are in contention. So this is a fun time. You may have dashed some of people's hopes today in posting your projections, but you also previewed for people that you may be crushing their hopes and dreams. So that was good. And and Chris, you you did us a favor earlier this year too and chatted with us about players who go into the pro game. But for the players who are returning back to the Gophers this year... Um, talk a little bit about, so the, the main players who saw major minutes last year who are returning to the squad are, you know, Athena Kuhn, Marissa Windingstead, Maddie Nielsen, Nikki Albrecht, Patricia Ward, TJ McKendrick, Selena Numidor, Megan Gray, Mackenzie Langdock, and Ariana Del Moral. And then a few transfers from different programs. So Cache Lou from TCU, Emily Bunnell from Baylor and Katie Coker from Marquette. Of that kind of set or anyone returning to the Gophers, um, you know, was there anyone who in particular kind of stuck out in the, in the database as someone who performed well or had specific parts of their game that kind of stuck out above the, um, the status quo?
1: Yeah, well, I, I think when you look at what Minnesota lost on offense through graduation, this is going to be a team if they get back to the NCAA tournament, if they're contending in the Big Ten, it's basically going to be on defense. Uh, so I think the player that a lot of people are going to look to is Nikki Albrecht, someone who has past uh, experience in the U.S. youth international system, uh, someone that I think is going to be on a lot of teams' radars for the NWSL draft coming up in the the next year, just because not only is she a player that, again, has played in the, uh, the U.S. youth system, I think all the way up to the 23s. Uh, but basically, she is someone that can play both center back as well as uh, on the flank. Uh, played a lot of left back in addition to center back. I, I think she's probably going to be more of a, a fullback at the next level. Uh, but she's someone that is a veteran now. It's someone who has played played very well. Was, in my opinion, their best defender last year. And she, if this team is going to kind of stay at the level or get close to the level they were last year, I think she needs to have that big step up. Good news is she's shown a lot of talent thus far. It's just a case of now, can she make that step up to, you know, playing at an all-American level?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and she got asked last year, um, you know, Emily Peterson on the spring trip to Italy uh, went down with an ACL tear. And so, you know, Nikki Albrecht, who had started, I think, every game of her career at left back, got moved inside. And um, it kind of threw, I think, folks who were watching the program from the outside kind of threw folks for a loop because she had been so solid at that outside back. And it, um, but this year, you know, with the incoming transfer of Caché Lou, who's a you know a true center back who had been a three year starter at at TCU, I think, like you mentioned, should allow uh, Nikki to shift back to that that outside that fullback spot. Um, and I think that that may end up being a, a good move. Um, what did you see out of out of Caché during her time at at TCU? At least, kind of, what do the numbers say on her game? I mean,
1: I I loved. I love the transfer of Lu, First of all, just because she—if if I was rating the top ten transfers out of D1, she's in the top ten. She played very, very well with a very good TCU squad last year. Has a little bit of, um, you know, international experience. I don't think she made the Jamaican team, uh, but she was she was in that mix for that team in the Women's World Cup. I think she's going to be a player that they're going to look to, especially because I think Jamaica needs good defending and i think cash lou is someone that can make that step up uh but you know she i think like nikki albrecht is a player that has the potential to go pro uh obviously uh, one of of the big concerns a lot of people have when transfers coming in are you usually see if they're coming into a big program they're coming from a smaller program and coming up to a, a higher level and can they kind of uh you know fit that bill and Should be no worries because TCU is a program that got to the NCAA tournament, uh, and Lou was a big part of that. In terms of you know what can you expect of her out of a player, she's kind of bringing up her stats right now. She's pretty good passer of the ball, you know, in a in a college soccer standpoint. Completed about eighty-two percent of her passes last year. um, You know, won pretty close to seventy-five percent of her challenges, somewhere in between seventy and seventy-five percent of her defensive challenges. Uh, is someone that is pretty good in the air. About 70% of her uh, her aerial duels were won there. So a really all-around solid player that can also, you know, take the ball forward a little bit, uh, dribble out of the back if need be. Uh, And I I think the big thing, you know, generally is just experience because this is a team, again, in Minnesota that loses a lot of players. Not so much in the back line as kind of in the attack, but they need overall experience. I think bringing in somebody with cash they lose experience uh, overall and at a high level TCU was only going to benefit this team. And I think you, you look overall at the back line. I think you also look at someone like Athena Kuhn, who, uh, I, th- I thought was very underrated last year. You look at, you look at her stats and you look at basically the, the, um, kind of the advanced numbers. One of the things I look at is, you know, is a player not just filling up the stat sheet? Are they one of the best players on the field of playing? Athena Kuhn was really, really good in that respect. Uh, I think she was the best player on the back line in that measure for Minnesota last year. So I think she's a player that a lot of people are going to be surprised at, you know, that she might get all Big Ten honors, but you shouldn't be because she played really well last year. Uh, And I think overall, uh, Minnesota, if everything kind of pans out, they might have one of the best back lines in the Big Ten. And I think that's kind of their path to contention this year.
0: Well, and I think that's that's such a good point on Athena. You know, she as a freshman showed really well as someone who could use her frame and use her body um, in the defense and in protecting the ball as kind of a holding midfielder. And then I I have to be honest, she, she looked ev- almost even better as a center back, which was sort of incredible because I thought she had a really strong freshman year. Um, and I think that last outside back spot it's probably oversimplifying to say it may come down to just Marissa winning said, who's a returning, you know, she's a senior who started for the first time last year. And then Katie Coker's an incoming transfer from Marquette who, who I think started 14 games. I could be wrong there. um But I think it, it may be oversimplifying to say that they, those two are sort of fighting for that last spot, but how did, how did Marissa look um, in your eyes last year as kind of a, a full-time starter, but as a first time starter. Yeah, I
1: think she was solid. And you know, I don't think she's quite at the level of the other players, but at the same time, I think she she was in the positives in terms of the the measure I just kind of talked about with Athena Kuhn and and basically players, uh, you know, being one of the best players on the pitch. And if you're in the positives, probably had a good season. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I think the thing to think about with Minnesota is you reasonably have three of those defensive spots locked up with all Red Cune and Lou. Mm-hmm. And that's that's saying a lot more than many of the other teams, even in this league.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so even if Marissa Windingstad plays at just an above-average level, that's still a really, really good back line. Mm-hmm. And if you want to pivot and talk about the goalkeeping, you know Maddie Nielsen is a player that I think she had her ups and downs last year, but that's to be expected because she's a young she was a youngish goalkeeper. Uh, but she also she showed a lot of potential last year, and I think if you have that overall core, you know, we're talking about a back line that probably is going to have at least everybody on there that started at least one season. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, you look at some of the competition, some of the other teams in the big 10, like Northwestern who lose a lot on the back line. Um, so I think Minnesota, again, I would kind of hammer home the point, but I think overall in terms of talent and experience, this does have the potential to be one of the best back lines and defensive combos kind of in the Big Ten.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and right in front of that back line, it's obviously more of a wild card. You lost Emily Heslin, who had been, you know, functionally a four-year starter, and then Molly Fiedler, who I think, I think started literally every game of her entire college career and they were just two absolute engines in the midfield um, two players who are currently you know making a trade overseas as as professionals um, in the midfield I think essentially the the returners you're kind of looking at are are the TJ McKendricks of the world, um, maybe Selena Numidor as a center midfielder, um, Megan Gray, who showed really well as a freshman, but can kind of play anywhere. You know, it's kind of one of those where her versatility also means that she's not really, you know, inked in in one exact spot, which is sort of a strength and a a funny challenge for her to have to deal with, that she can be so versatile. Um, and, uh, you know, in in Ariana Del Moro, who's who was maybe a little less experienced on the field, but also showed some decent potential. Um, talk a little bit about those returning midfielders and kind of which of them showed well in terms of, um, you know, how they looked last year.
1: Well, I think the player you're going to have to look to is, is T.J. McKenwick. She, you know, and in, in basically, I think you kind of explained it really well how, um, you know, Emily Haslin. And Molly Fiedler both were, were just rocks for this team, especially Molly Fiedler, who uh, I thought was one of the Big Ten's best central midfielders last year. Uh, and that leaves a big gap. And I think overall, Tabitha McKendrick is going, or excuse me, TJ McKendrick. I have, I have the name in the database a little bit differently, so fair, <laughs> But TJ but McKendrick's going to have to be the player that steps up. She, you know, she has that starting experience. She's a big-time veteran. Uh, it's just a question of, you know, again, we kind of mentioned this a little bit on the back line. Can not she kind of take that step up? So we talked about Nikki Albright kind of taking the step up towards being an All-American. I don't think it's that big of a step up for T.J. McKendrick. She just needs to be one of the bigger or one of the better kind of midfielders in the Big Ten. Uh, she needs to – I'm pulling up her data right now. She started 10 games last year. She, she's got to be a starter basically the entire season. Uh, because, you know, they need that experience because of all they lost. Uh, and I think it's gonna be interesting. Uh you probably know this better than me, but you think she's gonna be more of a defensive midfielder or, you know, or are, are they gonna to try to put her in a more attacking role?
0: I think uh, I I think the challenge the challenge there, 'cause, you know, Stephanie Golan, the head coach, has has typically liked to play a four three three where Um, you know, when you had a player like Emily Heslin, where she's kind of a true holding midfielder who will just kind of physically dominate the middle third of the field, then it allows you to play those other midfielders, um, in a more attacking position. But I think, you know, what I'm still wondering about is if it's someone like TJ McKendrick, where she's shown a pretty good aptitude for passing pretty good IQ, um, pretty good all-around game, but certainly not the level of grit that maybe you want out of a pure six, a pure defensive midfielder. You know, does that mean that that second midfielder needs to spend a little more time kind of in front of the back line alongside her? You know, is it kind of a double double holding midfield? Um, or at least one where a, a second midfielder has to keep more of an eye on it? Because I think the... Um, it, if she is end up playing in that center role, then I think the, the person who ends up, you know, playing that holding role alongside her will have to be someone who's who's either brand new as a freshman or someone who didn't see major minutes. So this actually might be a good time too to take kind of a half step back. And um, Chris, you know, when you're looking at that database and seeing that performance and even describing, you know, someone being kind of above average or a positive impact on the field. You know, for a for let's take a mid like a central midfielder as an example, someone like a TJ McKendrick, what are some of those kind of key points you look at in terms of, you know, indicators of you know how they're performing compared to their peers?
1: Yeah, so a lot of it really is positionally. So I'll just talk about center center mids right now. Center mids, a lot of it is about, you know, one, are the completing passes. Uh, this is obviously huge at the college level, where in the pros, I mean, you'll, you'll probably see center mids, you want them to complete about 80% of their passes, but high-level high college stock, you're probably looking around, you know, 75%. It's, it's probably a, a solid number. Obviously, you want to kind of get into the 80s there as well, but also, you know, things like winning challenges. If if a player is you know acting kind of as a deeper midfielder, are they winning defensive challenges? Are they good in the air? Uh, a, a lot of college soccer, especially in the Big Ten, a really physical league, is dependent on winning balls in the air. So can they hold their own in aerial duels? And if you talk about a center mid that's a little bit farther up, are they you know are they producing x a which is expected assists? Are they putting together key passes? Are they creating chances? Uh, so a lot of it is really kind of role dependent, uh, but, you know, those are kind of the core stats you're looking at when you're looking at center mids.
0: Well, and based on that, I mean, I think in terms of, you know, whether she performed better as sort of a, a holder versus an attacker, you know, did the stats kind of bear that out? Did she seem to be more of a tweener in that sense of kind of being able to play a little bit of both, but maybe the stats don't stick her in exactly one spot?
1: Yeah, I'm going to drag up the stats. I don't have it offhand, sorry. but uh, I, you know, So basically, when we were talking about TJ McKendrick in kind of her stats, she completed about 72% of her passes, which is, which is decent. It's not great. Uh, but again, consider, you know, at the same time, you know, Minnesota played a pretty hard schedule last year. So you have to keep that in context as well. Uh, in terms of challenges, one about 50%, so that you, you probably want to see that go up. Uh, aerial duels also about 50%. So she, she's average in a lot of areas, but at the same time, um, you know, she's someone that can also. I think she averaged about a little over three interceptions per match as well. So when we talk about taking the next step, she's probably averaged to somewhere above average right now. They need her to kind of up her game a little bit. I'd probably say she's she's more of a tweener. Uh, you know, probably kind of that jack of all trades. But again, we don't know the role she's going to play this year specifically because mm-hmm. you know, it may have been a case, a case of, well, they had this personnel last year. Uh, right. So they could operate her in a kind of an in, in, in between role. So we don't know how she, she's going to be utilized this year, if that makes
0: sense. Right, that's a good point. I mean, when Heslin and Fiedler are out there, essentially ninety minutes a game, you're not exactly going to have the chance, even if you wanted to, to try and suck up that oxygen of, of a larger role. So that's a good point. And I think the you know the other midfielders coming back are more kind of purely on the offensive side. I think of players like Selena Numerador. Um, and ariana del moral as actually almost kind of false nines like almost players who have the passing and the the iq of a of a central attacking midfielder but they're they're also not very rugged and they're not necessarily going to get in there and challenge um as much as kind of a pure um defensive mid they kind of drift more towards the attack or at least i think that's what they're their the eye test would tell you, but you know, what are those two? I think those two are someone who may benefit most from this opening other than the freshman, obviously. Did either of those two have numbers that stuck out um, kind of in any major way?
1: Um I wouldn't I wouldn't say so. I don't think they really stuck out, uh, as compared to some of the other Minnesota players. I think I think one of the points that you bring up though, you talk about how they're more offensive players. I think the good thing that Minnesota, again kind of delving back into their back line is that because their back line is probably going to be so solid, they don't have to sit with two holding midfielders. They can be a little more aggressive in the midfield, which opens up, uh, you know, chances uh, for players like Selena or Ariano DeMoral to kind of get forward and not feel like they have to defend all the time. Uh, Obviously the game plan changes a little bit. If you're playing somebody like Penn State who has, uh, all of these attacking weapons, they may have to be a little more conservative there. But I think on average, uh, you know, with the back line expected to be so good for Minnesota, they can be a little more aggressive. And you can see some of those players you just mentioned have greater opportunities to shine. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and I think the, you know, another thing I think is kind of interesting is, uh, you know, the for those who don't know, I mean, you know, a regular fan or even someone like me, Really ends up using pretty standard statistics in order to kind of gut check their eye test. You know, I can, you can kind of only look at what the NCAA puts up, which is, which is decent, but it's nowhere near the type of database that, um, Chris, you know, you, you delve into. So, like, one, one player that I think, um, or a couple really good kind of test cases for this in terms of eye test versus what the numbers bear out would be like a Megan Gray and a Patricia Ward, both as freshmen, I thought played about as big a role as as someone could hope for, you know, without being an every-game starter. You know, Megan Gray, the eye test would tell you she's a really savvy player. She's a great passer. She's a, you know, a smart defender. You could probably play her anywhere on the field, you know, other than center back, and she could have success. Um, But she's not, you know, she's not a lightning-fast athlete. She's just a a solid athlete. But her everything other than top-end speed for her is really seemed to be pretty – top shelf talent wise. Um, and then Patricia Ward is in some ways has opposite strengths where she's just such an incredible athlete when she's engaged, but seemed to have, have trouble of knowing when to track back as a defender. And then, you know, at times, um, would drift a little bit as a winger, um, where she, she wasn't necessarily checking and, and making those runs at the opportune moments, but because she's such a good athlete, you really have to game plan around her. I mean, what do those two look like for you as someone who who has to follow so many different teams and, and really look through the numbers a bit more?
1: Yeah, so, um, again, it really is about replacing April Bakken, and I think it's has interesting the way that the chances kind of break down amongst the Minnesota players because April Bakken was a player who basically Uh, almost monopolized the chances he had 27 chances uh scoring chances last year and nobody else had more than 10 for minnesota so that can kind of illustrate how important she was to the offense that being said second on the list person with 10 chances was patricia ward uh so she may be a focal point of this team going forward um I think an interesting thing to kind of look at is she's she can be a decent passer. I think she was second on the team in X A. Those are, those numbers are kind of incomplete though on Instat, so don't take too much stock into that. But she, she still had the second most chances overall, so I, I would I would estimate that she's going to be one of the focal points on the offense. I'm kind of wondering, you know, uh, is she going to kind of move more centrally? Uh, you know, is she going to still play on the wing? I know they I know. Um, The team also has, uh, you know, Mackenzie Langdott coming back as well, who played a little bit more centrally as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's going to be kind of interesting. You mentioned they played 4-3-3, so it kind of gives them a lot of options. I think, um, you know, Megan Gray is an interesting player because she had had six kind of clear-cut chances, but she scored three of them. So 50% conversion rate, not the biggest kind of sample size, but at the same time, uh, I think that conversion rate, if it if you can extrapolate that, it stays kind of near that level. I think you know Minnesota might have something, uh, but again, overall, whether it's Ward, whether it's Ray, whether it's Mackenzie Langdon, somebody's got to step up and fill that scoring void that April Bach had, had because you know a lot of a lot of times you know people with Double-digit goals like Bakken, they get it with a a kind of lower conversion rate, especially in the college ranks. But April Bakken was one of the best pure finishers in the NCAA last year, 52% conversion rate, which, you know, my point is that if you're above 30%, you know, in college, you're doing really, really well. So I kind of want to see who's going to fill that void for this team.
0: Well, and that front line is so interesting because I think one – in some areas, I think the the coaching staff has shown to be a little bit conservative in the sense that they, on that front line, they're willing to take risks, I think, at the wings, but they're less willing to take risks at that center forward spot. And a lot of the times that comes through in um, essentially playing like a higher floor player at center forward instead of a higher ceiling player in the sense that they don't want that center player to be giving away the ball and opening up a counter attack down the center of the field. So I think that's why players like Langdock end up getting those minutes because she's she's pretty savvy. She can kind of operate in space. Um, she doesn't have um, a rocket of a shot, but she's pretty pretty solid as a finisher. So she's kind of a floor raiser as opposed to a, um, a a high ceiling player. Because Ward is someone where with her, you know, if she could be someone who just takes the ball and turns towards goal with her speed and her her quick you know her quick reflexes she could be someone who could be really dangerous but i think the the worry is putting like a high variation player in that center spot means that there could be more of those turnovers and it could expose um to some of those dangerous attacks so that's always that's been kind of interesting to watch because they sometimes like to get into that high press as well and it's it's you know that can help them create chances but they're similarly worried about other teams getting chances in that kind of a scenario
1: Again, a lot of it's gonna be probably gonna be matchup dependent because, you know, like you said, you don't want to turn the ball over and open up a counterattack against teams like Penn State or teams like Wisconsin who we figure are gonna be kind of at the top of the league. Whereas, you know, if you're playing teams that are that are probably if you're estimating to finish at the bottom half of the league this season, you can probably be a little more aggressive. So it might be a case of, you know, playing matchups that way as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, into that point, I think you know you you came out just before we started recording with your projections for the for the Big Ten, um, and you know Penn State and Wisconsin and Rutgers at one, two, and three, um, you know Maryland, Indiana, and Michigan State towards the bottom of that fourteen team league, and Minnesota at ninth, which would be you know just below that threshold for the the conference tournament, I believe. Um, but talk a little bit about what goes into those projections and um, kind of what uh, uh, what would maybe put Minnesota at that at that point at this part of the season
1: yeah so my projections um, kind of all the things that go into it one returning starters so I basically go through every team in the NCAA and look at who who's returning so uh, you know Minnesota is basically kind of in the middle of the pack so they're not as bad as seems like Northwestern and Indiana who Use a ton of players, but at the same time, they're not as good as you know Wisconsin, Iowa, Purdue, who almost bring everybody back. Uh, I look at basically top players from last year. So the scenario where Minnesota really suffers because they lose April Bach and they lose Fiedler, Heslin, almost all of the players that you know really stood out for them uh, in a positive way last year. I look at results kind of in the, in the same in, the, in that same manner from 2016 and 2017. Uh, so, you know, this kind of takes into account players that may have had an off year 2018, uh, or were injured last year, but also kind of rewards teams that have players that have shown that they're really well over multiple seasons. So again, uh, I think Wisconsin in the big 10 scored highest in that regard, where Minnesota again, just because they had such a veteran team last year, they don't score high that way. In that regard, I look at coach rank, which is basically, uh, another metric that I kind of Oil into this overall kind of projection matrix. So uh, what goes into Coach Rank is, ba- is basically, uh, you know, how well a team does in their league. Do they make the NCAA tournament? Uh, you know, if they have, a, if the league has a conference tournament, does the team perform well in that? And how how well they do in the NCAA tournament? And this is an area where Minnesota scores really highly. In. Uh, I think, um, you know, I think they are they're actually fourth. Um, you know, of Big Ten teams in coach rank, and you know, the way I kind of have it is basically you get bonus points if you're high, higher than a certain threshold in coach rank, and Minnesota is, so they get a, I think they got a couple bonus points, and if you're a little bit lower on the scale, you get penalized, uh, and then recruiting, um, I basically use top drawer soccer just because they're the, they're the only one that's at recruiting rankings. Right. Uh, this is the thing I fiddled with a
0: little bit this season, just because there's a little bit of bloat in terms of there are a lot of two star prospects all
1: over. So I kind of adjusted that, uh, Minnesota scored reasonably high, highly there, not as high as, you know, Ohio state or Penn state is here, mm-hmm. uh, but still pretty well. And then I have, I have a column called bus potential, which basically, is to penalize teams that have only kind of been really good for one season. So a lot of people are wondering why Vanderbilt, the SEC, is you know I think only fifth in my SEC projections, and that's because they didn't do that well in 2016 and 17. Uh, but at the same time, it also you know protects against teams that were good in 2016 and 17, but not as good in 2018. Uh, so boil all of that stuff together, and you have my rankings so uh this year instead of just giving you first second third i also kind of provided a visual look as to kind of the point scale uh to give kind of a, a, a more complete look as to you know where teams kind of stack up uh so if you look at the big 10 kind of projections, you can see the top three are kind of ahead of the pack you kind of have a second group of four five and six and then kind of just got a, a giant blob kind of you know in the middle um, I, I think the good news for Minnesota, though, even though they're ninth, kind of in my projections, they, they're in a range where I wouldn't be shocked if they finish seventh. And you look at last year. Well, Northwestern didn't make the Big Ten tournament, but they made the NCAA tournament. So just because <laughs> right. you know, the conference tournament, the Big Ten, doesn't mean you're not going to make the NCAA tournament.
0: Yeah, that visual is really is really cool. I'm um, being able, like you mentioned, you can see kind of where where folks cluster where you know, where there's separation Um, that jump from Iowa at seventh to Michigan at six is interesting, but then, you know, all the way up, it really shows you, um, you know, where teams separate. And I think, you know, where, where you kind of spoke to a bit of that, uh, you know, the schedule this year, in particular, I think we were chatting before recording of just how brutal it looks for them. Um, they have an exhibition this Saturday against North Dakota State, so obviously that won't that won't count uh, for the record. Um, but then they have a couple of uh, games in California. They'll play Arkansas and Ole Miss, where um, you know th- those at least should be really tough competitive games. Um, Marquette, Virginia, NC State, who's really good. Um, South Dakota State is probably the closest thing they have to uh, um, you know, a, a non-conference you know, cupcake, for lack of a better word, but South Dakota State isn't a slouch either, and they always play the U pretty hard. Um, and then they jump into Big Ten play, and it gets pretty tough. And I think you know, one thing that's characterized this team over the last few years is they've had results that um, you know, give away losses that probably shouldn't have happened. You know, where they, they sort of play a competition pretty well, um, but that means they play down to teams that maybe on paper shouldn't be as strong. So, like their loss at Indiana, or I last year, the year before, a loss against Iowa that was a little bit ugly. And I think that really tough non conference schedule just really tightens in that margin for error where maybe they really can't afford to have any of those giveaways this year if they want to stay competitive in the pack. Um, but I think also you you do a pretty good job when we get into tournament time of talking about how that strength of schedule and how the r p i calculations you know maybe having those tougher opponents will will pay some dividends. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how programs have to think about that and how they build their schedule to you know make sure they get fair consideration from the committee towards the end of the year?
1: yeah i mean it's it's a situation where you know I have been told that. Coaches from major conference programs look at the way the stats break down in my database, you know, on a yearly basis when they decide to schedule, and it's kind of a give and take thing. I think the SEC were, were absolute masters at this in terms of uh, making a schedule that can get them to like 12 to 15 wins, but at the same time, it doesn't overtax them. And we saw this uh, this being a big kind of big thing last year, where uh, you know Colorado. Kind of as an example, they, in my opinion, were a top 25 to 30 team in terms of talent, but because they really didn't play anybody, uh, they didn't get selected for the NCAA tournament. And, and we saw this in the Big Ten with Illinois as well, who I definitely thought they should have gotten in the NCAA tournament, but, you know, they didn't. So, uh, you basically see, I think a lot of teams are learning their lesson in terms of putting together a solid schedule. Um at the same time, I think some teams can take it too far so that, you know, they're technically not out of the RBI picture once they enter, like, the play, but they're beaten up. Uh, and that's, that's one of the things I think Minnesota is going to be concerned about because, like you said, it, it's a very tough schedule. I think the opening weekend, you're going to California and you're playing two teams that are, I think, in my top half of the projections in the Big West. Uh, you're going to Oxford the week after, playing Arkansas and Ole Miss. Arkansas, I think, you know, is a top-20 team this year. Ole Miss, always a tough team to play, especially, uh, you know, considering it's the back half of a a two-game weekend. Then you come back home for three of the next four. I think they absolutely have to beat Marquette and South Dakota State. That kind of goes without saying. Uh, but in between those two games, you have games against Virginia and NC State, two teams that I think have a good chance of finishing the top five of the ACC. Uh, so it's an interesting mix. I think in one respect, it gives you a lot more margin for error in terms of where you're going to be at in the RPI. Uh, I think one of the bigger concerns might be: is this team going to you know be really far above 500? Because they could also lose many of those top conference games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something you know we saw. I think we saw Florida, and Notre Dame, like basically struggle with that last year because they played such hard non-conference schedules that they were fighting to just get to 500, even though they were in a decent shape in the RPI. The good thing I think for Minnesota though is that you look at their not you look at their conference schedule. They play Maryland, they play Michigan State, they play Indiana. Uh, you know they play Northwestern. I think is going to be a little bit down this year, so they have you know, a decent mix kind of there in the conference schedule, um, even though they're also playing, you know, Rutgers, Penn State, and Wisconsin, so they're going to get the best teams and kind of the lower-ranked teams as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's going to be difficult overall.
0: Well, and they one thing they did this year more than last year's, and I don't know if you've seen other teams doing this too, it, you know, with so many programs to look at, maybe it's tough to try and catch this exact trend, but they've worked really, really hard, to make the first game of the weekend a Thursday game versus a Friday game to add that that rest day in between, and they've always had a few of those, and they they stick out because I you know when you're trying to get from your regular day job like me up to the stadium you notice it when it's a Thursday versus a Friday, but they they have way more of those this year. So the um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven seven of their first weekend games are Thursdays instead of Fridays. And they do that as part of the, you know, the kind of sports science element of having more rest in between games. Um But I don't know. I mean, is that something you've seen from other programs or it's, I, it's tough cause I don't look at other schools schedules that much, but it seems like it's something that the Gophers have focused a lot on in terms of managing load.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a case where I think every league should be going Thursday, Sunday, just because, you know, Friday, Sunday is, is ridiculous. You're playing Friday night and then Sunday afternoon. Right. Uh, I, I think the Big Ten and the, the Big 12 are kind of the last of the power conferences to, to go uh, to still have fr- some Friday, Sunday games, uh, which should be changed. You know, let's be honest about right. it. Right. Uh, You know, non-conference is largely up to, again, you know, the team scheduling. And, you know, Thursday, Sunday, you know, should be the way to go. And I think especially when you talk about Minnesota, if you're playing a punishing schedule like they have on paper, you you really need to go Thursday, Sunday, just to make sure you're managing that that fatigue load uh, as you kind of move closer to the Big Ten
0: season. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Chris, we have we have soaked up plenty of your time. Uh, I really appreciate the the insights you gave for Minnesota, and I think you know for for folks who don't follow, um, Chris on Twitter yet or listen to the pod, you absolutely have to check it out. Um, WOSO Independent is the podcast, and Chris underscore ACH is the is the handle on Twitter. Um, you know, for you kind of mentioned that Top Topher is one of the only places that does the kind of Nationwide recruiting rankings in any kind of detail, and you are definitely one of the only people who tries to take on, you know, all of this kind of data analysis and and projection across the entire NCAA. There's, I think, it's 330 or 313 or 340, whatever the number is, number of Division One women's college soccer programs. So it's it's a mountain of stuff to keep track of, and you do a great job of of elevating that nationwide. Uh, so we appreciate you bringing your perspective to Minnesota.
1: Yeah, yeah, no problem. Uh, you know, it's it's actually—I have the number. It's it's three thirty-eight right now, and I think it's growing to three forty-one for like the twenty-twenty season because it just keeps growing. But uh, you know, it's fun. I love it, and uh, you know, I always love kind of having the opportunity to talk, you know, about it with other people. So thank you for having me.